The documentary Bad Press, which premiered at Sundance this year, is based on a feature of Native American tribal systems that may be surprising to many. Most of them don't have laws protecting freedom of the press. And the fact is, most of the news organizations in Indian country are funded by the tribal government. So you can see the potential for conflict and censorship. Bad Press tells the story of the reporters at the news organization on the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma after tribal leaders repeal press freedoms. It's about how these journalists try to tell the real truth about their own community. But the story also has an eerie parallel to America's dysfunctional political culture. We'll talk about it on Radio West after this. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. For reasons we'll get to, there are only five Native American tribes in this country that have laws protecting freedom of the press. But in November of 2018, the political leaders in one of them, the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma, voted to repeal their Free Press Act. And this set in motion a drama documented in the film Bad Press, which premiered at Sundance this year. Reporters fight to get that freedom back and to explain to the community why it's important. One of the reporters in the film, really the main character, is Angel Ellis. Now, this was November 8th when the National Council repealed the Free Press Act. Angel called it D-Day. No one had any clue about there being any kind of real problem or anybody out there looking to have an issue with our department. It wasn't on our radar. Most of us kind of sit down at our desks every morning. You know, some people take a little bit of a break and go grab some food or a breakfast burrito or whatever. And we started seeing our emails. Everybody started looking at their emails coming across. And it said the agenda for this meeting, an emergency session, was like, why in the hell are we on an emergency session agenda? Like, we had no clue that anybody had any kind of problem or anything. Emergency session, November 8th, 2018. Time is now 6 p.m. Next item on the agenda. A law of the Muscogee Creek Nation repealing MCN, CA, Title 49, and Title Muscogee Media and creating a new Chapter 11 under MCN, CA, Title 16, and Title Muscogee Media discussion. They didn't give due time in advance. They didn't put out an agenda in time for anybody in the community to know what was going on. It was very much a mad kind of rush to hustle through some legislation that would just eradicate the free and independent press. I feel like the newspaper itself has had more positive issues on the nation and not so much negative issues with it. So that, that, that's one reason that I support it. You know, the very next day at work was, you know, orders from the executive branch to pull off articles, put them in different places, remove videos, and they were censoring us immediately within 24 hours, which we were all scared that it would be even worse. Maybe they would lock us out of our building. Maybe we wouldn't have jobs. We just weren't sure. And so they really had that important meeting and just, you know, very swiftly put us right under the rug and we were done for. That moment kind of catalyzed some things that were probably already in the works, but kind of became the urgent fire that we needed to get to move it on that. I had spent years doing tribal journalism, and, you know, I'm one of the free speech, free press, freedom of information advocates. I've always worked in small local communities, and I've always worked knowing that those communities rely so heavily 
on the communication from that press or that local news outlet. And I could see from the very beginning of my career, always knew firsthand that that role was very vital to a community. It was a punch in the gut to me because I knew that that was probably going to be the hardest hit that we ever took. And I was not sure that we would survive it. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're profiling the film Bad Press. Angel Ellis joined us along with the directors Joe Peeler and Rebecca Lansbury-Baker. Rebecca began her career not as a filmmaker, but as a journalist on the Muscogee Nation. My first job out of journalism school at the University of Oklahoma, I came to work for uh, what was then the Muscogee Nation News. So it's now Muscogee Media. Uh, So that tells you how long ago uh, it was. And that's where I got my feet wet. And I had such an interest in using my education and degree to help you know, my tribe and to improve our communications between tribal citizens and um, their government. And so I, I felt like it was a really important role for um, our tribal journalists that are serving their communities to be able to provide information as a service, you know, to our people. And so in my current role, I am also the executive director of the Native American Journalists Association. So that's my full-time gig. And I've seen it You know, multiple times there have been, you know, instances where free press was squashed by the tribal government and you never hear of the issue again. And so I knew that on, you know, when I heard about the repeal, I was like, I can't let this happen again without telling the Muscogee journalist side of the story because I know how hard they've worked to, you know, make such a great uh, Muscogee media department that is serving citizens and doing essential work for you know, educating them and creating engaged, informed voters. And that's such an important service to the people. So that's when I approached Joe and said, okay, Joe, what do you think about this as a a documentary? Because luckily he's an established documentarian and has experience as an an editor. And um, he did want to sign on, thankfully, and, uh, you know, pursue the story and tell it. And so I think we make a really good team with my connections to the story and to our community, of course. And then he brings a lot of technical expertise and um, is always really quick to throw in the white guy questions, which are really important for, for our <laughs> film. And, and we're, we're very hopeful that, you know, that this film is going to see a wide audience. But, you know, in Indian country, we can kind of get into a vacuum when we talk to each other. When Angel and I are having a conversation, you know, it's, we kind of tune everything else out. So it was really important to have that uh, Joe's perspective as an established filmmaker to make sure that we were, you know, adding proper context so that, you know, audiences who are not familiar with Indian country, which are probably the majority of yeah. our audiences, yeah. are going to be able to understand some of these um, nuances and these uh, intricacies of tribal governments that may not be you know, present in the, the mainstream. Okay, Joe, let's talk about the sort of the white guy perspective then. Because one of the things you've talked about is being aware of the fact that you were sort of p- parachuting into the Muscogee community just to extract a story. You didn't want to to do it that way. And one of the people you talked to about this um, was Graham Brewer. And I wanted to ask you about the conversations you had with him. He, he trains um, um, j- journalists how to sort of ethically talk about indigenous stories. We talked to him, for example, on the air not so long ago for some guidance about reporting the story of Native American boarding schools in Utah, for example. And I just wanted to get a sense of what he said to you. One of the things he mentioned to us was that if you're only there when something bad happens in Indian country, um, they have this message that you don't really care and that you're exploiting their so, – so what was he telling you and what were you trying to be sensitive about? I think Graham was really a guiding light to the documentary and especially from my perspective because really he highlighted for us uh, the importance of not parachuting into a community. It was really about, I won't won't say becoming part of the community, but embedding Hmm. in the community and making sure that uh, you stuck around. You didn't just extract the story. Uh, One of the things that Graham spoke about was that uh, stories for indigenous communities are currency, 
And so it's another form of colonization to come in, drop in, pull the story out, and leave and pull the plug effectively. And so I think the process of filming for me was one of both learning and one of taking Graham's words to heart. I want to ask you about, Becca, how you define what this documentary is, because um, it can be a number of things, and maybe it's a, a lot of different things, but is it is it journalism? And I say that acknowledging the fact that it's about journalism, but do you see it as journalism, or do you try to take more of a point of view? Maybe not activism, but certainly, I mean, clearly you've talked about how personal the story it is to you, your affection for Muskogee Media, and I just wonder how you define what it might be. And I'm not even sure if you think that's that's important, but what do you think? Yeah, a really great question. And as I mentioned, it is such a personal story, and I feel like it is a part of me, and I'm connected to it in so many ways. As a citizen, you know, as a former uh, editor of Muskogee Media and, you know, obviously as um, someone that's in leadership in the Native American Journalists Association that represents journalists that are covering indigenous communities across the U.S. and Canada. And, um, you know, you mentioned Graham and we, you know, as an organization, train journalists to do that. So obviously, yeah. like, you know, there, if there are bias there that exists, I'm I'm wholly willing to uh, admit that, you know, I'm, I'm coming at the, our story from a journalist perspective. And I think, you know, our the way that we approach it, we use a lot of and rely on a lot of like journalistic like principles mm. in our storytelling for sure. Now, what I say, I, I don't consider the documentary journalism, but again, we are 100 percent a journalism story. And like I said, I, I felt like, you know, as a first time filmmaker, I relied really heavily on, you know, some of those journalistic practices and, um, you know, storytelling principles mm. uh, for for the story. I had no idea where the story would go, but we knew that if we wanted to get it right, we would have to spend the time and invest, um, you know, in the community and building that rapport with all of our subjects on both the journalism and the, you know, uh, the politician side. And so I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to, you know, spend the time that's required to tell this story and tell it right. We'll come back to this in a moment, but there is this transparency um in the in the film, in the sense that you you do tell both sides or all all sides, or in the sense that there are these citizen bloggers that start to question the motives of Muskogee Media um, later, and we'll, we'll we'll talk about th- that moment here in, in a bit. And you you reveal it. I mean, you don't you don't you don't um, set it aside, which I think is says something important. And I, I, Angel, I wonder what you think about that. The idea of being a journalist trying to be as transparent as possible, trying to really pick apart people's motives and be skeptical and all those kinds of things, but also being in a piece that maybe has a point of view. I think that the documentary absolutely is a piece of journalism. Um, I absolutely feel that um, as a journalist, you get one get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to advocacy, and that is for freedom of the press, and that you can never use your skills enough to support that. And I also think that this film intersects a a couple of different things. It's journalism. It's a blueprint of how to uh, advocate for free press. It is also the story of a journalist-turned-whistleblower, and it's also a little bit of an adult version of Schoolhouse Rock. You know, that's kind of all in there. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, for me, this was also something very special because this became a very therapeutic outlet. There's not very many journalists out there who are doing that kind of work in that small environment who are overworked, understaffed and stressed out who get the opportunity to tell their story. And so I really felt like with that in mind, I had to really hold nothing back. Mm -hmm. And so it it made me aware of how um, journalism was under attack in our country, uh, you know, as a whole, how this this went beyond um, a tribal issue. It's a national issue. And so this is just really a slice of that and how it trickles down into the very small um, niche communities. So... Yeah, I I feel like it's all those things and more. Angel Ellis, she's a reporter for Muskogee Media. 
Rebecca Lansbury Baker was also with us, along with Joe Peeler. They're co-directors of the documentary Bad Press, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Here's an easy way to boost your monthly gift to KUER. Switch to a direct donation from your bank account. Your support won't be interrupted due to lost cards or expiration dates, and when you do switch, you'll help KUER save thousands of dollars each year by offsetting steep processing fees. Most importantly, you're strengthening your support of the essential local news and NPR programming you depend on. Make the switch today at KUER.org membership. This is Radio West of Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're profiling one of the films at Sundance this year. It's the documentary Bad Press. It's about the newspaper and news organization Muskogee Media, which covers the affairs of the Muskogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma. After the reporters of the newspaper started writing about more than just, you know, community events like corruption and scandals, the National Council repealed their Free Press Act. The film features the journalist Angel Ellis. She joined us for the conversation along with the directors Joe Peeler and Rebecca Lansbury-Baker. I want to ask you about a scene, a moment where Angel describes her connection to that place. And it's the time when she talks about how the Creek Nation came and put a cistern on her family's property. When we lived here... uh one point it was a little bit like camping i had an outhouse and this little contraption right here is a concrete tank and the purpose of it was to supply clean fresh water to the house and creek nation came and built that put it in for us and the creek nation coming and putting this cistern in pretty much changed the whole scope of my life from that point on it set us at a level that we were just like everybody else we had the same resources Without the tribe, I don't know where I would be. And I always wanted to help the tribe in some way because they helped us. She talks about how it changed the course of her life. What, mm-hmm. what was it about this? And what does she mean by that? That scene where Angel is at her dad's house was just like such a, a essential like peace in grounding who she was as a person and she talks about how from that point on she was just like everyone else like she had indoor you know indoor plumbing like everyone so she didn't have to feel like an outsider and I think that's you know one of the bigger like themes that we explore through Angel's experiences and um, that's something that I I feel like I again have not seen on the big screen is um, Muskogee citizens or, you know, citizens of indigenous nations who, you know, maybe are unexpected in in how they look in the diversity that's here within Indian country and how they speak. And, you know, sometimes it's not always easy if you don't you're not identifiably native to feel like you're, you know, a part of the community. And so I think exploring someone's very personal stories as to how you know, they feel connected to their own communities, no matter, you know, what they look like or, um, you know, what their experience has been. Like, it's just not talked about enough because, um, you know, that's just how Angel felt like she was connected to the land and mm-hmm. to, you know, the, you know, her ancestors ultimately, I think, is, is um, you know, how she says it. But it was just really important for her to, um, to, you know, give back to the tribe through her service as a journalist. And that's that, those are the skills she has, you know, to offer. And um, Creek Nation is very, very lucky to, <laughs> to have her, obviously, as a, as a citizen. But I think, you know, exploring those, like, very deep and personal stories of identity within indigenous communities. It's, mm. it's, it's something that, yeah, I could go every, every direction. And so again, we're just very thankful that Angel trusted us, you know, to tell her story because again, those are so, so precious and, um, you know, everyone's ties to their tribal identity are unique and it's very nuanced conversation. When I'm at the tribe, sometimes I worry if I'm not saying a word a certain way or 
if I don't look a certain way, if I'm not Creek enough. But being here, being home, there's no expectations. Like there's music right now, like you can hear it. Angel, what did you mean when you said in that scene that there's music? What did you mean by that? Um, there's really something super special about finding the point that changed your life's trajectory, right? Like yeah. that's a place where you hear with more than your ears. You hear with your heart. And something that, you know, I don't even think they asked to film at my dad's place. No one said, tell us where you came from. <laughs> but I really wanted to do it because I think in the indigenous community, a lot of people feel burdened by shame of poverty, and I wanted to demonstrate to people that you can come from literally anywhere in the world, from any level, and you can work and you can do things and you can advocate and you can pull yourself up. I mean, yes, there are things and programs that can help you, but it doesn't make you any less dignified. It doesn't make you any less of a human being. It doesn't mean that you're not good enough to walk out there and be an authority on mm -hmm. something. I think that our community is often held back by some of the the various um, tools that have you know we've we've had so much taken from us. So of course, we're many of us are starting with absolutely nothing. We have had no way to um, obtain like familiar familial wealth. We've you know those things were destroyed. And I wanted to demonstrate that a person with a dream, a person who's willing to work, and if you're willing to devote yourself completely to a purpose, you can put on something that's way more than just your normal self. It's almost like you put a cloak on, and that's uh, a lot of responsibility. Magolgi is what we mm -hmm. call it, and you mm -hmm. do it with anagichka love. So those things play a huge role in my life, and that's that's where I hear the the music, where I hear the things that, um, you know, you clear your mind of all other noise and you go to a place and you and that's the place where it was the genesis, where it began. And so that piece of land in Oklahoma um, is where it began for me because I, it was where I began to learn who I was, who I who where I came from, how I got there. And um, it was important for me that there's other little kids out there who um, and, you know, when I was out there showing the film crew around, it made me remember times when I was a child and I was afraid to invite my friends to my house because, you know, you don't want your friends to know you have an outhouse that they have to leave the home to go use the bathroom. They'll make fun of you at school. I didn't I didn't like being the kid at school who who took off their coat and somebody in, in the class said, oh, it smells like a smoke fire because we had our indoor heat was a potbelly fire stove. Those were things that um, indicated shame. And I wanted people to see that as more than just poverty. It's it's resiliency. It's strength. And um, it's not the typical kind of way to tell it, uh, but it, it, it was very important to me to kind of include that. You can be anybody from anywhere, look any kind of way, and as long as you're willing to devote yourself completely to a purpose, and especially when that purpose is grounded in love, that there's nothing that can stop you. Becky, you've mentioned the word um, service a few times. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about that word because it – gets to one of the things I think the film speaks to, and that is the nature of journalism and what that means, that the service of being a journalist isn't just saying the good stuff mm. or revealing the, um, you know, the, the time for, this, for the, t the town dance or whatever it might mm -hmm. be, that there's something else there. How difficult a message is that to convey to people that part of this service as a journalist is revealing the warts and all of a, of, 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 of a society. Um, Angel, you take that first. You know, like I'm a very service-oriented person. I feel uh, grounded and I feel complete and whole when I can put myself to work to good use to something higher than myself. And um, it's very important in the overall scheme of things when you're thinking about tribal sovereignty in a climate where people may not always want to support tribal sovereignty. So I think that as a sovereign 
it is your duty to be very aware, to see all the flaws, to see the cracks, to see the weaknesses in the foundation. If you want to make sovereignty stronger, then you address those cracks. You address those flaws. You do not run away from them. You do not sweep them under the rug. And the reason it becomes a service to become to be a journalist is because often in the pursuit of doing this well, we sacrifice a lot of things. We sacrifice having a lot of friends sometimes. We sacrifice being popular. Those things, we sacrifice money. We take our vows of poverty and we serve in a way that many people couldn't do. And um, that's that's the reason it was it's so important to me to to kind of portray that and to heal these relationships between the audience and the journalists so that they understand. And Jared mentions it in the film. A lot of people take it personally, but it's just he's the one I got that uh, friend kind of uh, uh, metaphor from. He's like, do you want a good friend who will tell you the truth or do you want the yes man who will lie to you? We don't need some psychopathy in, in this system. We have to make it strong. We have to make our tribe strong. And often we'll we'll see our tribe embroiled in some battle in the United States Supreme Court. And sometimes in the past, our stories have been, you know, a a part of that. And if the tribe uh, truly wants to defend sovereignty, then it has to be able to answer these hard questions to at least its very own citizens. Because if you can't answer to a citizen, how on earth do you expect to answer to the federal government, which would be more than happy to wipe you off the face of the earth? Yeah. Becca, you've said that um, – I, I love this quote. Journalists and tribal politicians are both fighting to protect the same thing, tribal mm-hmm. sovereignty. They are just using different tactics to accomplish that. What do you mean? Absolutely. So you know, on that note, I think it's always a very interesting um, story to tell when you're thinking about the journalists and how they're approaching uh, supporting tribal sovereignty and then how the uh, tribal politicians are doing that. So it's really two sides of the same coin. Really, the journalists want to protect tribal sovereignty. They're insisting that there is accountability, there's transparency, and that citizens should have access to important information so they can be educated and they can be informed voters. And then, you know, on the other hand, the politicians are saying, oh, if we air our dirty laundry, this could get us in trouble. You know, we have um, that our story happens also in the midst of the McGirt versus Oklahoma Supreme Court case that involved the Muskogee Creek Nation. And so the politicians from their point of view are saying we need to shore up our image and make sure we're presenting this strong, you know, face that mm-hmm. we we are never made a mistake in our lives. And we have the Muskogee media over here, you know, airing our dirty laundry. So we don't want that. That, but again, both of those, uh, you know, different uh, tactics are really in support of the same thing, and that's to ultimately protect the sovereignty of the Muscogee Creek Nation and to strengthen it. I guess the key question, and Joe, you mentioned the statistic. It's going to be striking for a lot of people um, to realize that you know there are 574 federally recognized tribes. Five of them have codified press protections, and the question is. Why? Why only five? Is it not part of a native tradition to have a free press? Is it you – know, And I mean one of the things that the film does is it sort of it, – it talks about that positive message, that idea of putting the best foot forward is important to understand sort of the context of the Native American experience in this country. This tribe has always felt it's important to record its – best foot forward. Our nation has rebuilt itself countless times. One characteristic of our people is their will to rebuild. Throughout history, the Muscogee people were told that the Indian is too dumb and too insignificant to take care of themselves. It's a fear for us that that stigma will be placed back on us. And that's why we want to show the world how good we're doing. Because this world is designed to tear us down. Angel, what do you think? 
first of all, you have to understand that like in the in the indigenous community, face-to-face word of mouth communication is a very huge thing still storytelling, um, even traditional stories, and even like just how your community events is still very much done in a face-to-face manner through, Mm -hmm. you know, the aunties picking up the phone, telling people about this or that. But here's what really gets overlooked on a historical context level. Most of our indigenous communities have been disrupted by federal policy in some way. So most of our indigenous communities are emerging and building and forming democracy in their own way. And if you look at our particular situation being a very young democracy, what was the first version of that democracy? It looked different. It was implemented by the federal government and dished out to the people. They even picked our chiefs, right? Mm -hmm. So they picked the system and they set it up in a way that they could manipulate it. And they never included things like free press or freedom of information because by God, why would you want a community to be that engaged and engaged and well connected community is a force to be reckoned with. People think that your hierarchy of needs is love, food and shelter. I would argue that you need to throw in information as well in that it's just as vital to your survival as anything else. And so as our communities have grown and established themselves, you see that people who have often been uh, poorly treated, who have been abused, they don't often realize and wake up one day, I can ask for my rights. That's not the way things are done. A lot of people feel defeated. A lot of people feel lucky to have very, very little and and they depend on it and they, they don't want to jeopardize what little they do have. Mm-hmm. So what we had to really do was shift a paradigm within our our community on that individual level. We had to empower that person to use their own voice. And I come from a background where I look at our archives from I, – I, I operate in an archivist perspective, right? Mm-hmm. How did the Native Americans get erased from the history books? Well, they didn't exist in the archives for the people who wrote the books to reference. So our archives are so important to protect these stories because I want to make sure that there is a roadmap. 70 years down the road, I want someone to look into my archives and see how we did everything that we've done because they are emerging and they are rebuilding. And these are being built by the tribes themselves. So, I mean, like people have asked me as we've done these Q&As, like, what's the next step? You know, how do we make this spread across all of Indian country? And, uh, you know, it's kind of tempting. Maybe we should start with the BIA, you know, maybe the BIA should implement this policy. But you can't do it that way because you're devaluing self-governments if you try to tell people what to do. You have to go into the community. You have to elevate the individual to be able to ask their legislators, their representatives to tell them what they really Mm -hmm. need from them. And then the people have the power. And that's what it's really kind of focused on for me. And that's just how I see how we are in this situation where in 2022 and 2021, and you can be a place and, and, and be a government but not have a free press law. And people often misunderstand another fact. Our constitution has the preamble to the American constitution in it. And it said that none of our rights as American citizens would be abridged. Technically, you could say stifling free press is abridging my right. But do I want to be the citizen who takes my tribe to federal court and become the pariah Mm -hmm. who's breaking down sovereignty by asking a court to patriarchally hand down a a, a, a jurist, you know, a ruling judgment and ruling judgment, yeah. yeah i don't want the i don't want to have to do that i don't want the federal government to rule on it i want our tribe to be sovereign and in order to do that we go mm. in we talk with our citizens we empower them we shift those paradigms on the local level and an interesting addition to that is as an outsider the way that the law is set up is that if i wanted to and had the means i could roll into Okmulgee, Oklahoma, and uh, set up my own press. There's nothing saying that I can't do that. Uh, but because the audience is so niche and because the audience is smaller than maybe like the Tulsa World or the New York Times, go ahead and try to make money off of that. Hmm. You have to have a system hmm. uh, that the tribe funds the media because the advertising dollars aren't rolling in in the same way that you would on a national or even like a larger statewide media outlet. 
And so there's this the the film explores this kind of strange loophole yes. where there no one is saying you don't have free press or you don't have freedom of speech, right? They're just saying the executive branch is under is controlling the news news outlet, the newspaper, uh, your television. So there's this odd thing that the government is doing that's like sneaking in uh, this loophole, yeah. and uh, which was like extremely fascinating to explore. Well, I think it was it was so interesting to hear. It's weird to hear you say in the film, Angel, our department. Mm-hmm. Your department? Like, what the hell are you talking about? It's <laughs> the government has a budget line item for your department, which is a, as a you're a journalistic organization. And I thought, well, why can't there just be an independent press? You probably shouldn't be connected to the government. So, so that's easy to fix. But it sounds like, as what Joe said, it's not really. Right. We exist in a very robust news market. And if anybody could do it, I tell you, I would have already done it. I put <laughs> yeah, the pen to the paper. Yeah. I spent I spent a lot of time. I've done every single job you can do in a print, print news organization. And I've even branched off and done some video work. But one of the things that I remember very, very vividly as a very young person, you know, like doing this job and working in tribal media, I went to people and I said, hey, Ford, why don't you uh, purchase an ad in the Muskogee News, you know? And they're like, why would we purchase an ad in a newspaper catered to people who don't have any money? And those people only make up about 6% of the population, by the way, you know, so it's not like the market supports a publicly funded model. What you have to do is you have to consider the funding source of the Muskogee Creek Nation. The funding source is gaming. If you consider that gaming revenue is about like really tax dollars, why not issue some of that into a fund Mm. as a service to the people. The only way people can access that gaming revenue is through services. So the people have the power to go and tell their politicians, I want so much of my tax dollars spent on informing me of what my government is doing. That's just a public funding model, right? Like Mm. that's how we've pitched it and that's how we're setting it up today. That's the reporter Angel Ellis. We also heard from Joe Peeler. He and Rebecca Lansbury Baker directed the documentary Bad Press, which premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem. We're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're profiling one of the films at Sundance this year. It's about the struggle for press freedom in Indian country. It's called Bad Press. And it tells the story of the reporters at the news organization in the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma. This comes after tribal leaders repeal their press freedoms. It's about these journalists' efforts to tell the truth about their own community. But the story has an eerie parallel to America's dysfunctional political culture. We have with us the reporter Angel Ellis, who's featured in the film, along with the directors Joe Peeler and Rebecca Lansbury-Baker. What's a campaign like, a political campaign like, in, in the nation, your nation? Talk a little bit about how it mirrors American politics in some way, because it seems like there are these parallels. I think a lot of people watching it, unfamiliar with the way tribal government might work, We'll see the, 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 the campaign. We'll see the campaigning um, and, be, and think, wow, that looks very familiar to me. Yeah, because we have representatives from dis- different districts, right? And, uh, you know, we have at-large citizens who live outside of the reservation and they mail their ballots in. And, you know, all of those topics that have been permeating in the national uh, election times, and especially where it overlaps with media, you know, oh, ballot fraud, all these things play a role. You know, the, we saw that in the film. 
uh, things like, oh, you know, the media isn't telling the truth and you can't trust the media. Very big in the national sector, very much a part of our, uh, you know, political season. And then you let, sp- let me just say, I just want people to be able to understand because many, of course, haven't seen it yet, is there's the, there's this drama of of an election. And I won't give mm-hmm. too much away about it, um, but Lucien Tiger alleges election fraud. Right, um, which right. is surreal to see it play out. I have to say, um, because it really is kind of in parallel with the U.S. story of, of election fraud that came in came up at, in in the twenty twenty election. I would absolutely say they're completely parallel. The only difference between the national elections and the Muscogee Creek Nation elections is that some of these people might be your cousin. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right, like, like, right. <laughs> so that's what makes it kind of tricky yeah. is like you're going out there and that might yeah. be your your Uncle Joe or somebody that wow. you do, like who's pissed at you because you did this story and yep. he likes this campaign yep. candidate. And, and, you know, it's just real close together. Um, it's the same topics. It's the same issues. There's very there's very much a uh, anti journalist kind of mentality in the world today. Mm-hmm. And that permeated right into this uh, situation as well. But yeah, it's always really close because we're we're a tribe, we're related, we're kin. What was it like covering the um, uh, Becca and Joe? Talk a little bit about trying to as you're editing this and create a sense of drama. There's a lot of it. Very much has the war room kind of vibe to it sometimes, right? <laughs> and I'm guessing you were. I don't know if you were going for that, but it's certainly the just the the the, the basic drama of these different elections and waiting for the vote count and the different kinds of strategy. It was really that was really amazing. I thought really interesting. <laughs> the election was quite a roller coaster. There's ten candidates all running, and all of them are claiming that they are pro freedom of the press. Uh, clearly, some of these are claims, some of these are true. You've got front runners, you've got wild cards. And speaking to the microcosm feeling of what was playing out at the national level at the time, it was during the um, the uh, presidential election as well. It was happening in tandem. And so on the national level, you would see Bloomberg enter the race and everyone would say, hmm, this seems like a candidate who has a lot of money and is trying to just buy his way into the presidency. Mm-hmm. And then in Muskogee Nation, you would have a very similar candidate enter the race. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and we kept seeing these parallels play out over and over and over again, which was kind of shocking to see while we were on the ground. Uh, practically, we would dispatch uh, multiple camera teams to cover all of these different uh, uh, these different candidates and ended up uh, I would say we probably have enough footage with each one of the candidates to create their own single films uh, <laughs> and that gave us the ability to kind of intercut while we're uh, jumping around between the uh, campaign headquarters of each of the main candidates and uh, seeing what's happening behind the scenes uh, which is something that I don't think that many audiences get to see on the national level, and I don't think mm-hmm. that many audiences in the Muscogee Nation have seen before, to just see how uh, those things play out, whether it's on the tribal level or the national level. It was also a lot of fun. And I, remember, I mean, that's <laughs> obviously, for me, like one of the things that I was excited about in going into journalism, especially within, you know, the Muscogee Creek Nation. I re- my dad worked for Creek Nation for like 25 years and he always huh. said, you should stay far away from politics. So, of course, I was like, what's the thing I can do that get me the closest to politics and right in the middle? <laughs> yeah. So it, even though, as Joe mentioned, like logistically, it was so wild trying to be, you know, with all 10 candidates and get you know, cover the elections in that way. It was also just, I think, really fulfilling to like be in the midst of, um, you know, the democratic process and to like talk with citizens about why or why uh, they're not voting. What are the issues that are important to them? And like to hear directly from uh, the candidates how they were responding to that and or not responding to it. So for me, I think that was really, you know, fulfilling as a as a citizen and as a voter, um, but also, you know, as a storyteller for 
um, this film to to watch it play out. And again, I, the, one of the things I want to highlight is that the reason why I think it's so fun, one of them, is that these personalities are just so larger than life. And I think when people think about a story like ours that's very, like, issues heavy or <clears> – <throat> We're dealing with a lot of a very stressful like topics for the journalists, mm. but on the journalists and uh, the politician side, there's so much humor and humanity in how they are, you know, dealing with these situations. And, you know, we're following them on the campaign trail and they're just in everyday situations. That's just it's a very funny, you know, watch. So it's that's one thing I want, you know, audiences to know and to latch on to is the humor in our story. And uh, it's it's so special to be able to capture that. And I'm so thankful for Joe's expertise, too. And I like to say we're, we just make such a great, you know, team it, because I really feel like he came in and made it like cinematic. And again, we had like over 400 hours of footage. And how do you <laughs> pare that down to 98 minutes? But yeah. he did a great job. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the funny part because there are a yes. number of there are a number of T-shirts you could create with just <laughs> different kinds of sayings. Angel alone, but like like yes. I just want a Cuban sandwich and maybe a whiskey is another one of my. That's my our favorite. new catchphrase. Is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Our new catchphrase is uh, that and democracy boner. Yes. That's yes. also a favorite. Yes. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of merch that we need to make. <laughs> And yeah, as far as the humor goes, and particularly in the election, the thing that comes to mind is like, I think that Muskogee Media is probably the only uh, news outlet running their official election results alongside of a live broadcast of a bar band, uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) which is like a particularly fun scene to watch. Yes. Truly native. Yeah, yes. there's a there's a twist to the story I want you to talk about, um, and I'll be careful not to give too much away. But one thing that happens after the, the the council repeals this, you know, these press freedoms, is is you talk about how the trust, a kind of trust, was broken, and and there's a there's this twist where now you have citizen bloggers and others who as there's this effort to now get a constitutional amendment, you know, passed that would, you know, you put it in front of voters to to codify, you know, press freedom. But that raises, again, these questions that citizen bloggers and others are wondering about the motives of the Muskegee media reporters, that they don't really care about freedom of the press and free speech rights, that they're more interested in protecting their budget or their lifestyle. This amendment that is on the ballot needs to be trashed. This is all about the financial of them always getting their budget approved. A lot of people were making huge salaries in there doing absolutely nothing. So don't get confused when they say, oh, well, freedom of press, freedom of press. That's another one of those national level trends that we were seeing infiltrate our tribe, that misinformation that starts going out there. And like what what really kind of like I think started it, um, maybe it's not like really in the film, is that I started having very candid conversations trying to let people know. Uh, just exactly how much of our department and what was spent where. And, um, you know, technically my department's budget was, you know, X percentage of it is in salaries because most of what we produce is produced by people. And um, so that's the big expense. The other big expense in our department was printing and postage because you got to mail those things out and you got to print them off. Mm. But it, it became a narrative that the op- opposition to free press could latch on to and they could say, oh, my God, about 75% of their department's budget is in salaries. And that's insane. Meanwhile, I was making $28,000 while we were filming yeah. most of that, that uh, documentary. And it wasn't until I became director that I actually quit qualifying for food stamps. You know what I'm saying? Like it it was just a a small little fact that if you can take it out of context, you can plant misinformation in a community and you can, you can use that if you're powerful enough to sway the voters. And that, when I started seeing that surface, it, it very much disturbed me, but I ended up taking this kind of mindset. I told myself, you know what, if the opposition is saying this, if they're trying to use misinformation, I'm scaring the out of them and I'm glad. Mm. So uh, 
it became an indicator that we were becoming successful. Hmm. If if you start planting misinformation out there, stuff that I can easily disprove, then it means I'm starting to get to you and you're starting to quake in your boots, right? Like that's just the facts. Yeah, I, I still get angry when I think about that line. They were just – some of them were making huge salaries. That's literally no one was making no. a, a huge salary. No. Uh, so I'm glad you I'm glad you clarified that. But it is true uh, how, you know, just like we see play out in the larger um, U.S. media landscape, that was absolutely true for our elections coverage as well. And we saw that misinformation yeah. and disinformation campaigns, um, you know, creep into our, you know, citizens' information. So Yeah, and it's especially effective in a small community with uh, not a lot of access to records, right? Like we've been fighting really hard for records and documents and getting transparency. Well, if you use disinformation and you completely shut people out of finding the real information, Mm -hmm. you can really effectively control the narrative. And that's tyranny. So uh, we were really kind of fighting the good fight, you know, take away the tribal perspective, take away, uh, you know, anything that distinguishes it from everyone else. That's really what we're all kind of fighting for um, today in, in, in our news climate. We're just really trying to get to the bottom of the facts. I won't uh, give too much away. I, I, I guess I will say that this effort to pass a constitutional amendment goes well. Um, and as Angel so colorfully puts it, we just f- up free press in Indian country. And so I wonder, like, the question is, what does this mean in the larger sense that this that this effort played out like it did? Will there be momentum among other Native American? You are? Oh, talk about that. So, yeah, there's already people using this model. And what, what we did was really a model built upon a couple of our uh, predecessors. And there's already people out there right now advocating to get the same kind of uh, changes happening in their tribes. Yeah, and I, I think it's the three affiliated tribes who actually has a, a constitutional amendment that they have drafted and that it's working its way through the approvals process within um, their nation as well. But yeah, and I, I absolutely think that is in a, a direct result of hearing the Muscogee Nation's story. And in Indian country, every tribe looks to every other tribe to see what they're doing when they're making big strides and whatever it is. And I think the same is also absolutely true for free press and um, seeing how Angel and the staff at Muscogee Media, you know, help to basically serve as a as a catalyst to uh, inspire Indian country. I, I think, again, we're absolutely already seeing that play out. And I think we will continue to see other tribes who are interested in adopting those protections at either, you know, the legislative or hopefully the constitutional levels as well, um, because they see, you know, it, there might be a struggle behind it, but mm-hmm. it, it can absolutely, you know, be done and also, you know, how it benefits um, your tribal nations to, to do so. Well, Becca, Joe, Angel, thank you very much, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Rebecca Lansbury-Baker, she co-directed Bad Press along with Joe Peeler. Angel Ellis was also with us. She's a reporter. She's featured in the film. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 